Hi everyone, Daniel Ramsey here, the CEO of My Outdesk and the host of Scale the Podcast. This podcast is dedicated to having conversations that unlock the exact formula and strategies multi-million and billion dollar companies use to scale their business. You can visit me on our website at scalethepodcast.com or listen to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play. Daniel Ramsey here with my Outtest. I'm excited because we're doing a series where we interview CEOs of other virtual companies and talking to them about best practices. As you know, we've been in the business for 12 years, helping people scale and grow their business. Now today, we've got Liam Martin, the CEO of Time Doctor. Now, what's interesting about him is that he serves all of the virtual assistant companies out there in the entire marketplace. And we're so blessed and thankful that you can join us today. Liam, thanks for being here, man. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Uh, do, we're going to talk about scaling virtual teams today. You, yeah. you have done that. <laughs> well, you know what? I mean, it's, uh, it's not to the degree that companies like you guys have and our other clients. So we only have about 100 remote employees right now. They are fully distributed. However, they're in 32 different countries all over the world. And we are really passionate about that. We believe that it is truly the best way to be able to work. And then by extension, uh, we want to be able to share that with as, many, with as many people as possible. So we facilitate this type of technology to be able to get other people onboarded and getting them access to what I really call kind of like the, basically the leveling process of work. So allowing I've people got, from I've all countries all over here. to get access. Yeah. You, you said something that's crazy, like, and I want to, because most of our clients come in and we've got to talk to them about, well, how do you do a virtual? And you say, it's the best in the world. Like you, you think a distributed team is the right way to build a business. Now that's completely a different mindset or what I just heard. Like, tell me more about that. Like, why is... I mean, that's factual. There's no kind of debate at this point, pretty much. So by 2027, 50% of all work in the United States will be remote. Okay. Very clear projection, right? So we're at very small numbers this year in the last few years. So in 2017, 58% of all work of, of workers in the United States worked remotely to some degree. So that could be Friday remote, right? Uh, or it could be we're working one week remote out of the month or something like that. But only 2.1% in 2017 worked full-time remotely. This year, 2018, sorry, uh, we're looking at around 3.9%. And the year before, we were at 1%. So we're at an exponential scale right now. So we are seeing exponential growth in remote work. And when you talk to academics that are really researching this, econometrics and statisticians, they're projecting 50% remote work by 2027, which is in eight years based off of us conversing at this point. So if you look at 50% of the US workforce being remote, then we are talking about a shift in labor not seen since the industrial revolution. It is a complete reimagining of the way that we run labor. We're talking about a complete reimagining of the way that our carbon footprint is placed. So you no longer have to drive a car into your job. You can work from home. You're not heating an office 
and a, a home at the same time. There's all these different things that are coming up. Uh, I think that real estate will actually take a huge hit. And this also is in combination with a lot of things like artificial intelligence and automation that's working their way into these types of systems. But fundamentally, we're going to a complete shift towards how work is done. And a lot of people call it new work. They just kind of call it that. I don't like that term, new work. Remote work for me is, is I think, what the real core of it is. And it's a very exciting project because I think we're all part of it. And I think we're going to lead to a much more sustainable world, a much happier world, uh, a world in which employees are a lot more rewarded in their particular work and they're able to spend a lot of more time with their families and friends. So I'm very excited about it. <clears throat> but Liam, I, I'm the boss and I like to have my people in the office. I want to be able to touch and feel and know where they are. And how, how, are, how am I going to build culture if a person is sure. working in a place? So the, the answer to your first question is your emotional connection to being the boss will make you a fossil of the last century. So if you don't understand there are a lot of people that I talk to in the Fortune 500 world where we do deployments for um, large multinationals and I get two questions whenever we discuss going remote. Number one, I can't see what they're doing. How do I know what they're doing? Time Doctor solves that. And then the second one is, I really, they basically are saying, I emotionally really like a big office. I like to sit behind a big desk and I like to be, the boss. Yeah. Okay. I can tell you a small story, which actually connects to this beautifully. So I have a small co-working space that I work out of uh, here in the local city that I'm in, in Canada. And I remember this woman who runs a very successful tech startup and not as successful as our tech startup, but a very successful one nonetheless. And she, um, she didn't really like me or she didn't know who I was, I suppose. Um, I would kind of call her probably your stereotypical nasty person in a co-working space that you'll always, there'll always be one. And she came up and was talking to her co-founder and she said, man, we need to talk to some of the bigger companies, to bigger tech startups in the local area. Like we've got Shopify, we've got staff.com, we've got Time Doctor. And then the co-founder, who was very nice, he said, you mean Liam's company? The, like this guy right here. And I'm just looked up and, you know, she never really recognized that I could be running uh, a company with hundreds of employees all over the world because I've always just been this quiet little guy tapping on my computer in this co-working space. That's the future. And the conceptualization that you need that big office, I think if you hold on to that, it will actually be one of the most biggest faults inside of your P&L month over month. You are going to be bleeding cash if you don't go the remote model because it is on average, and don't take my word for it, most of the large-scale studies will prove this. The average is working out about 20% more efficient regardless of the wages. So you pay exactly the same wages, you save 20% with the remote work agreement, and more importantly, retention is 30% higher, which actually is the bigger part of this pie. So every time that we replace someone inside of the company, it costs us $46,000. Recruitment, HR, building that entire process, being able to hire, you know, do a short list of 200 candidates, boil down to one single candidate. 
need to train that person. We need to make sure that the right decision costs us a lot of money. So every time that we save someone from quitting, that's more dollars in our pocket. And remote work is the biggest leveler towards reducing um, that problem inside of a business. So there are these two huge variables. I mean, right now, when we look at all of the largest, at least tech companies that have popped up over the last five years, almost all of them are remote when you're looking at it now. And they sometimes will not declare themselves completely as remote. Uh, Envision is a company that's four years old, billion dollar company, all remote, 700 employees. Uh, WordPress, completely remote company, 3,000 employees. You know, WordPress, what runs one third of the internet, completely remote. They were actually in office on premise and they got rid of all of their offices and they just went completely remote because they realized it was a stupid model. Uh, Just even recently, Shopify has shut down the majority of their offices and they're almost entirely remote at this point. I believe 10% of their labor is inside of an office. So these models work, they are very successful. Um, They will continue to work and I think that it's just, you're, you're gonna be left behind if you're not part of this particular movement. What's interesting is as I'm listening to you, I, I wonder what's gonna make the shift? Like what, when you think about like remote work, you know, catching fire, going from one to two and then up to that 50%, like what's that shift that has to happen? Is it the internet? Is it, you know, the carbon foot? I mean, what, what has Dollars to happen? To hell with carbon footprint. You like you got you got. I run a company. You run a company. Uh, can I save twenty five percent per hour on labor? Right? Can I reduce my costs by twenty five percent? Yes, I can do this remote thing, and the employees are happier and more productive. Then I'm going to do it. And it's just unit economics. Every single company is recognizing that this is the way to do things. Uh, WeWork, as an example, has an insane valuation. And WeWork, for people that don't know, is the largest co-working kind of company network in the United States. Um, Now, why do they have such an insane valuation? I actually believe that their valuation is correct because they are going to become the Amazon S3 or the Microsoft Azure of offices. They are literally going to replace... 10 years ago, it, would have, it wouldn't have been insane for me to set up my own server racks to be able to run Time Doctor as an example. It would be a little right. bit weird 10 years ago. 15 years ago, everyone was doing that. 10 years ago, you had this thing called Amazon and you, know, they could bor- you can borrow capacity from them and yeah, okay, we can put our servers on these systems and they kind of exist in the cloud, but they don't really actually, you, know, you don't know where that physical data is. Today, no one does that. Everything runs on the cloud. Um, You'd be laughed out of any venture capitalist meeting if you said you're going to build your own server racks because that's going to cost you hundreds of millions of dollars to literally run a website efficiently all over planet Earth. So I think the same thing is going to happen for for offices. And I think that these co-working networks are the ones that are really going to be leading the way where you'll be able to have the vast majority of office space not owned or leased by the corporation that those employees are in. They're going to be basically run by companies. And then me as an employer, I can put my 100 people into, let's say, 50 floating spots all over planet Earth because I'm never going to consume all those 50 spots in one particular place. My costs are going to go down by half 
in comparison to a regular lease and we work or whoever it is is going to take their margin. So right. that's, that's the future, right? You're, you're seeing, I mean, and we're talking about <laughs> replacing all office, office spaces. If by 2027, that number is correct, we're talking about 150 million human beings in the United States, just in the United States, that will need a place to work, right? They'll at least need, office, they'll need meeting space. And so those types of infrastructure projects are the ones that are really kind of building up to allow us to really explode out remote work. Hey everybody, Daniel Ramsey here, and I wanna tell you about an extraordinary offer to take action and start scaling your business right now. You know I get a lot of questions about how to grow your business, generate more revenue, and reduce expenses, and the answer is simple. It's My Outdesk Virtual Assistants. My Outdesk offers five-star virtual assistant services to thousands of business professionals across the United States and making our clients over $100 million in net revenue every year. Our customers absolutely love our virtual assistants, and I wanna give you the opportunity to learn exactly why. Simply text the word MOD, MOD, to 31996, and we're going to give you a free double my business strategy call, where you work one-on-one -on -one with one of our business growth specialists to design an action strategy for growth and cost savings in your business. We're gonna give you over 20 growth and strategy guides, a market force personality indicator, an important business checklist, and hiring guides. My Outdesk admins can help manage your office, your sales, your marketing pipeline, and even help you lead generate and follow up. And during this call, you'll learn exactly how you can put them into your business right now. So again, text MOD to 31996 and get a free double my business strategy call right now and learn how My Outdesk can transform your business today. What's interesting is, as you make the point, what, um, let's say somebody decides that you're right and they're going to change their entire model. They're going to jump into the remote or what we believe, we call it a blended model where some of your folks are in-house and some of your folks are virtual, right? Yep. That's kind of our big push because we deal with a lot of companies that are licensed and insured and like where the salesperson has to have a license and there's some kind of service-based happening, right? And so we believe yep. the salespeople are physically in the office or physically with the, with the clients. You're never going to beat out HIPAA compliance. You're never going to beat out any of those types exactly. of like strict requirements. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and you just have, and that's just how it is, but everything else can be outsourced basically or virtual um, in your world. If I believe that, what are the tools that really, really kind of matter um, to make somebody successful as an organization, as I'm making that transition, because it's a big transition and it can't happen overnight. It's got to, you know, you've got to phase it in over a couple of years and then, you know, understand that, you know, not everybody's going to jump in all at once and all that kind of stuff. So how would you make that transition? So uh, one of the companies that we have worked with in the past is called GitHub. And they're basically a large um, development repository company. They just got bought by Microsoft for 7.5 billion, completely remote. And they originally were an on-premise company, which is what remote first companies call 
office companies, right? And you have collated model, co-located model, all that kind of stuff. So they were on-premise and they actually uh, did a really in-depth talk for the conference that we run called Running Remote on how to take those on-premise employees and make them remote. And their biggest mm -hmm. findings that they gained from moving, at that point it was, I think it was eight or 900 people, and they're at a couple thousand at this point, uh, was the biggest thing that they need to be able to overcome is communication. So communication connects to culture, connects to the ability to understand your KPIs, all of those different variables. It just all kind of ties back to communication. So they used Slack. Um, I think that Slack is probably one of the best examples of a kind of remote work darling that's popped up in the last couple of years. An honorable mention that I would also make is Twist. So Twist is another application that's competing with Slack and it specifically connects to asynchronous communication as opposed to a synchronous communication model. So I have, um, about six months ago, I got a text message through my Slack emergency channel at three o'clock in the morning. And it was that our servers were down we basically had sharded one of our servers and it, and it basically collapsed. And about half of our database was just not online. <clears throat> so I was freaking out. And the only message that I get on my phone is if someone posts a message into what's called emergency chat on Slack. So that rings my phone. And I woke up and I read that message and I opened up my computer and I started freaking out and I started tapping on this thing till... 11 a.m. So I went from 3 a.m. till 11 a.m. And the only thing that I could do because I'm not a developer was answer support tickets. Now, it's probably not a good idea for the co-founder of the company to be able to sit down and just answer tickets all day long. We had a team to do it, but because I was so frustrated, that was the only thing that I could control. So I was just in an elevated level of stress. I just started answering tickets. If we had had an asynchronous model, we have particular hours that you work and then off and then out of those hours, the app is designed not to bother you. So there's no more notifications. There's no more beeps. There's no more pops, anything like that. You're able to do, you're able to have your home life and you're able to have your work life. And I think with remote work and it evolving, we're going to see that trend become a big problem. Just like what we've seen with social media. A lot of people have said now it's kind of the distraction economy, right? There are yeah. companies like Facebook and Instagram and uh, Twitter that are spending billions and billions of dollars to distract you from what you need to do. Right. And we are, for, for me, particularly in the work world, I don't want to get notified at three o'clock in the morning for something that is going to elevate my anxiety and stress for something that I can't control. Uh, so that's twist as a response to that. Outside of that, I mean, there's payroll issues that you've got to be able to solve. I think TransferWise and Payoneer are two fantastic options if you want to, do, if you want to be able to do large-scale payments. About 15 years ago, we were, and I'll never go back to Ukraine, so I, don't need, I can say this, we were smuggling money into Ukraine because right. the banking system didn't work properly. So we'd literally smuggle in $50,000 into the country, okay. and then we'd pay our developers Right. in Ukraine with that money. And maybe that would last us, you know, six months or something like that. And then we'd have to <laughs> smuggle another 50 grand in. Now you have platforms like Payoneer and TransferWise that just make that process absolutely seamless and perfect. Yep. Um, so 
there's payments, there's communication, there's HR to a degree. No one has really built a fantastic HR tool for remote teams. I'm waiting for it. Um, if anyone is listening right now that wants to build something like that, it will be a multi-billion dollar product. Absolutely, you just need to build it. Uh, and then outside of that, just generalized communication. So we use tools like Trainual. Uh, we use stuff like Trello, Basecamp, Slack, Zoom, um, Google Apps for Business is probably the best dollar that we ever spend in terms of just a communication and collaboration tool because all of those documents are in the cloud. Uh, you just kind of need to get into the concept of everyone doesn't live in your space. They, um, the, the biggest concept to overcome with regards to on-premise companies is they always presume that Suzanne is right next to them and that you can teach Suzanne something instantaneously if Suzanne does something wrong. But Suzanne is 10,000 miles away. Always presume that everyone is 10,000 miles away. So you need to take everything that you've got, document it, process it, systematize it, digitize it, and then uh, be able to communicate that to other team members inside of your organization. And all those tools help to be able to do that. What's interesting, uh, um, I think another concern that our clients have a lot is, uh, well, how will I know if they're hitting the goals that I set? And I think that raises a challenge, right? So when you're a small to medium-sized business, you know, you've got to move quickly and, you know, KPIs change, deliverables change, outcomes change. And so there's some comfort in having somebody right there in your office. Absolutely. However, however, like how do you overcome like the speed at which you know, an entrepreneurial environment needs to move and then like setting goals. I think the challenge that leaders have is with the dispersed, mar you know, kind of model is those people would be out of their sphere of influence or it's harder to get them to be influenced because they rely so much on that face-to-face -face versus right. process and system. You know, right. so what would you tell that person who is all energy, all, you know, influence, all energetic, you know, positivity to get people to do something? I would tell you, answer. I really commend your energy and it's super exciting and inspiring, but you're totally going to screw up your business if you don't systematize everything inside of that business and start to not work in it, but on it. So you need to really have that mindset of, what if I get hit by a bus tomorrow? Will this company still exist? Will it be fine, right? Uh, we, we talked very briefly beforehand. I've done like 300 and something podcasts over the last five months. Yep. Um, I'm basically just a schlub that sits in meetings and just makes sure that everyone is doing their job. I manage managers at this point. Right. At the beginning of the business, that wasn't the way it was, but now I'm managing managers. So all I'm doing is I'm acting as a coach to be able to work with them to say, how, what innovations can you develop and how can I help you develop those types of innovations so that you can help your team? Um, right. And I mean, that really, it's not the most exciting job in the world. To be honest with you, I actually went through about two to three years in the business where I had, and I've talked, talked to my business coach and my therapist about this. It was a, I wanted to do these small jobs, I wanted to be on the front line because I felt guilty about not being, about being the person that comes into the room and says, Daniel, you do this. Suzanne, you do this. John, you do this. I'm right. going to sit in this chair and not do anything. 
but that right. is a job and that's a really important job and you need to be able to i needed to be able to accept that which was moving from an entrepreneur to an executive and they're two different things right entrepreneur is like energy move it i'm going to take nothing and i'm going to turn it into something and then if right. you want to scale something you got to turn into an executive and this was the thing that i wasn't it wasn't really calculating in my own mind i didn't process it until i was able to really come back and constantly had mentors that were telling me what are you doing like why are you doing these stupid menial tasks like link building as an example i really like seo uh, it's kind of, it's the thing that we started with and I would do link building up until about three years ago and, you know, literally emailing people asking for links and that's a stupid expenditure of my time. So to kind of respond to, to, to respond to that, I would try to convince that person that doing those types of things is probably detrimental to your business, but emotionally it makes you feel good. So you need to kind of measure those two do you want to have a successful business or do you want to feel emotionally good in the moment? Uh, I wanted to feel emotionally good in the moment for years. And then I realized, no, I need to overcome that and be more um, focused on building out everyone else as opposed to building up my own, you know, ego, I suppose. Yep. We're all going through that. If you're listening right now, I am absolutely exactly where you are, Liam. And it's, it's a challenging thing to actually not get into the weeds and help other people win. I think the other piece of, of what you've just said is it's not like I know how to win on my own. Winning through others, that's hard. That's a different skill yeah. set. You've got to develop it. You're you moving pieces on the chessboard, right? And yeah. it's like, this rook is not good. <laughs> like it's not doing, I could be a much better rook, but it's like, but if I become the rook, then who's running the chessboard? Right? right. And then you got to keep constantly moving back to that. And I have seen people that I've worked for or the people that have worked for me. I, I technically say I'm always working for everyone else. So my job yeah. is to basically make you 10% more efficient. Can I make right. you, can I make you go 10% faster? Right. That's my job. Uh, so I have seen people fail in my face and I've known that I could absolutely solve the project. I could get them through the project. I could land that plane. But then if I land that plane, there are 28 other planes. Why did I choose that plane to land versus the other ones? Right. And it's just kind of one of those things that you have to, you have to realize you're either, you're either choosing someone else to go in that spot or you're helping that person achieve that goal. You should not be jumping into that spot yourself. And it's such a difficult, like I, up until today, there's still issues where um, with our, our conference that we run on remote work, we have these conversations that I'm having about user acquisition and um, just realizing that, oh, maybe someone didn't do their, didn't check their Google Tag Manager properly. And it's resulted in a $10,000 worth of lost Facebook ad expenditures or something like this. Okay, well, that's a lesson that everyone needed to learn. And that person needed to learn that lesson. I've already learned it. But what I'm trying to do now is, is teach other people. And hopefully they will make less mistakes than I initially did. Uh, so such a difficult thing to do, but so important. Especially because that $10,000 feels like it comes right out of your back pocket, right? It's my pocket. Like, yeah, it's in my pocket. <laughs> yeah, that was my money, right? Like that, yeah. that's gone. But then, you know, and you have a teaching moment at that point saying, okay, so we've, uh, we've made a mistake. 
let's move past that mistake. Understand that if you continue to make mistakes like this into the future, this will be a much bigger problem. But at least you, I always tell the team, come to me with these mistakes as quickly as possible, because if I discover them on my own, it's 10 times worse. Mm-hmm. If I discover that you burned this cash and you didn't tell me, or you don't know enough about the subject matter in which I discovered it when I look over it for five minutes versus this is your job, this is a big problem. And this is why we wouldn't, I have a, a document that I use with everybody when I first end up having them as a direct report which is blueprint to Liam and his weird little quirks. And I have nine things that I talk about um, inside of this document, right? You're going like, to have to pull all of these up, dude, because now. <laughs> well, so <laughs> I have uh, first one is just a couple. I'm an ENTP, which is basically the Myers-Briggs. So I like to argue a lot. Um, I am really, I'm a very big conversationalist. Sometimes I like to converse just because I enjoy it. So don't think that you don't need to cut me off as an example, if I go off on tangents. So I give those employees the permission to be able to say, Liam, you're going off down a road that we don't want to be on. Let's get back to the actual project at hand. Um, decision is probably the most important variable that I respect. So my second big point is decide. Uh, quant always wins. So if you have an argument, if we're basically discussing an issue and we want to talk about what's going to, uh, what are we going to do next? <clears throat> As an example, let's say we're choosing a feature for Time Doctor. You have to come in with quantitative data. So you have to show, hey, 28 customers want to do this and 18 customers want to do the thing that you're talking about. So, and here are the, here, here's the ROI from these 28 customers, as an example. Uh, but the thesis statement that I have at the bottom of the document is, I value decision-making above all else. I'd rather you make the wrong decision than none at all. And that's really important for remote work. I'd rather you make the wrong decision than none at all. Because some of the people that I work with on our 12-hour on our delay, they need to make their own decision. And sometimes that decision will be the wrong decision. But if they don't make a decision, that's even worse than making the wrong one because then they're just frozen and they don't feel like they have any ownership. So the 10 grand that you lose, you you can't create a really negative environment for failure. You need to be able to say, man, that sucked. I guess I'm not gonna get my Tesla lease this month or something like that. And I, and I guess we're moving on, you know, like something that just says, but why do you think you failed inside of this task? Where did it break down? What can we do in the future to be able to solve it? Thank you for doing these. You know, I still think you're doing a great job. Let's keep going. That's what you really want to communicate. Right. And also correct the behavior because typically it's some habit or behavior that needs to be upgraded in order to for that mistake not to it's it's usually not a skill sometimes it is a skill or an understanding but i find you know it's usually a habit or behavior that is missing or that needs to get upgraded my hr manager has told me that um my recruitment or hr and recruitment manager has told me i am a good leader but i'm not a very good manager so that's normal right now yeah. So, and that's very entrepreneurial, right? Yep. I don't care about the details. Don't tell me how this little thing works. Just get it done and let's move on to the next stage in this process. 
So the bias that I've actually had recently, which we've now set in as a check, so we've weighted this when I have personal reports, is I seem to be hiring the same types of people as me. And that's really bad because the first thing that someone that's just like me would want to do is not the things that I don't want to do. So I want to be able to hire people that are basically my, my HR person has told me, you need to hire managers. You don't need to hire leaders. You need to hire right. someone that's just going to say like, let's keep the trains running on time. Let's project manage this. Let's make it happen versus, hey, we're going to get through this. Let's all um, come together on this idea. It's going to work. Let's make it happen. That's yeah. kind of, that's more me versus the train on time guy. That's, that's not me. Unfortunately. We actually, we actually at my outdesk, we have a, a, I don't know, basically a document that outlines the different roles. So owners allocate capital, right? And okay. leadership set standards and create bets. So they're looking for, for strategy and they're making bets on where the world's going, right? And then managers build systems and processes. So, mm -hmm. and then, you know, below that are people that deliver outcomes. So, you know, sell 20 widgets or whatever. But we, we, we're very clear about that distinction because we've hired so many people and entrepreneurs have to sometimes sit in multiple seats in their organization and they don't understand why somebody who is an individual contributor who's responsible for an outcome needs a manager because they're always right. up in the leadership part and they're like, but I don't want to build systems and processes. Well, do right. you have a manager? Yes or no? No then you're building system and process. And sorry, dude, you right. got to do that because that's yeah. what a successful business does. But that distinction of allocating capital, setting standards and creating strategy, you know, and then systems and process has helped our clients understand their, their role in onboarding virtual assistants. I love the allocating capital component. I mean, that's really something that we have, we've been doing both of those roles so we've been doing, you know, stage one and stage two together. And sometimes that's a little bit difficult to the degree to which we've actually hired a, uh, a CFO that is now protecting us from saying, Liam's got this crazy idea. He's going to spend like $2 million on it. And you need to, and then the CFO says, you can't do that. <laughs> you need to stop. <laughs> and you need to, you need to recognize that if you do this, you're exposing this part that. of the business to this type of risk. And maybe that means if this fails, then maybe you don't grow anywhere near as, as well as you thought you were going to grow for this quarter or for this year. So it's a, uh, it's been a very interesting insight for me to be able to start to compartmentalize and restrict different decision-making inside yeah. of what I'm doing. And it just continues to go down that challenge of the entrepreneur to executive, right? The entrepreneur is doing everything at the beginning. The executive in essence is just moving the pieces on the chessboard. And um, I think actually, if I'm going to be completely honest, I'm probably not the best executive in the world. I'm more of an entrepreneurial person going from zero to one, but there's no one currently in that place right now. I'm kind of learning this role. Maybe I'll get better at it in the future. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a journey like everything else. But if I had an ideal situation, I would probably have a, uh, a person that could come in and say, I've got this business to $5 million, $10 million a year. Can you get it to $100 million? 
Right. And then that person then is really good at doing that next stage of the job. I know there's been most of the successful models that I've seen in terms of business. Very rarely are you both the person that can be the entrepreneurial person and the executive. You really need to start to decompartmentalize those because they get uh, their, their different skill sets. Well, what's interesting is I probably made a different mistake. I actually hired the person to, you know, be the leader, um, but I, I, I didn't have all the systems and processes in place and I didn't have really that understanding of setting standards, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think one of our big challenges, you and I, as you're scaling a business, whether you're uh, going from that 1 million to 10 million, we call it the valley of death right? So the first valley is zero to 1 million. And our clients, you know, tell us, well, you know, I couldn't have afforded to hire three in-house people at $70,000 each, but I could hire three virtual assistants. So that helped us get through the first valley. So now we've got a million dollars in revenue. The next valley, that one to 10 million, oh my goodness, systems and processes, leverage. I mean, it just, it's, there's no real rule book about how to do it. And all the books out there are written by academics who haven't actually built businesses. So they, yeah. they, they pretend that they know the formula by interviewing 20 people. And you're like, no, you don't, right. you don't, you don't know the real formula. You, know, you never have. There's a, uh, there's a new rule of SaaS, which is software as a service, which is basically right. what Time Doctor what does. Right. What, 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 yeah, what we do. And it's called the one three twos. So if you want to build a $100 million business, your first year, you should be doing a million dollars. Your third year, you should triple business to $3 million. And it's important to say triple because if you're doing 1.5, you should be tripling that number as well. And then after that year, you should be doubling again. So theoretically, right. one, three, six, and that gets you on a $100 million trajectory. And there is a couple VCs that have basically just realized we see this pattern. And if we see this pattern in the first three years, we throw money at the problem because we want a piece of it. And um, to the degree to which I've I had a, a dinner with a friend of mine last week and he said, uh, well, we've only done about uh, half a million dollars on the first year of starting the business. So, I'm shutting it down and I'm starting something else. And I was like, can I have it? <laughs> cause I was like, that's cause it, he's only got this mindset of I've got to stay focused on that particular problem. And it rolls back to your academic argument of they don't know what they're talking about. You could, you know, maybe you're doing half. There's so many different variables that work into each particular business that not yeah. everything fits inside of that little box. Um, that's a good model to work from. But just because you're doing half a million versus a million, I mean, even if you fall flat on your face, maybe that projects out to a $50 million a year business, which is a pretty good business uh, to be able to have. So I think you're right. It's just, you need to kind of almost at the beginning, it's all gut. Uh, and then as you move out and you have bigger and better numbers and you can basically project your quarter and your year, uh, then you can use more of that academic mindset to solve all your problems. When you think back to Time Doctor as a million dollar business mm -hmm. and you, you went through that first valley, what mm -hmm. were some of the things that you instituted to go from the million to the... To get it's, through the almost entirely, it's almost entirely the same things that you were talking about. So process documentation was absolutely critical. 
um, being able to replicate funnels. So we almost, so right now, Time Doctor is 60% referrals. Yep. So if we look at 100 customers, 100 new customers that come in, 60 of them come in from referrals. So we are a product-based marketing team, right? So we basically have this piece of software. You use the software. If you get value from the software, you tell other people. And we kind of find these people. So how do you scale that type of process? And how do you just scale it reliably? Well, we do something like whenever we enter a city of more than a million people, we'll do a meetup and we'll usually have 10 customers that will be in that particular city. And we just say, bring a friend. And it's so, and people would think to themselves, well, that's not very scalable. Um, mm -hmm. And you're right. It's not. But those hot referrals, every single time I have a meeting and I spend $200 on drinks for people, I end up generating 20, 40, 50,000 in ARR from those, from those meetings. And yep. so what we've realized is, well, yeah, Liam's doing a couple of these and it looks like the ROI is pretty good. Could we try it if Liam doesn't do it? Maybe if it's just one of our senior developers or someone from customer support or someone else. And we've realized that that model also works too. So we're actually doing a 486 city rollout next year. So we're doing 486 cities where if you are a customer, you will get an email in the next year saying, hey, we're coming to Boise. <laughs> and we're here to, and, and you know what? We're going to have some drinks and, we, and it's all on us. And we'd love it if you could come and hang out. And yeah. uh, it is, those, are, those are examples of like, that's getting from zero to, to one and then one to 10, one to 20. That's how you kind of build in that next step is it's not just Liam anymore. It's, it's, an, it's an organization uh, that basically facilitates that. And also disconnecting me personally from the brand is another way you will almost entirely... I know there's a lot about personal branding that's probably you're seeing on the internet right now. Um, I would venture to bet that there are very few entrepreneurial brands that are worth more than $10 million a year. I would probably say there's less than a hundred, right? That are, that are worth that amount. Um, you need to really focus on the product. That's what you need to put all your energy behind move away from, disconnect yourself from the product as much as possible. And then uh, that thing can scale on its own, uh, which I think is probably something I should have learned earlier on. Uh, it was a good way, good way to kind of get that initial traction, but long-term I realized that it was actually a problem because a lot of people would say, well, I want to talk to Liam. You know, like I, I bought $10 a month of Time Doctor I need to have a phone call with him right now because I'm not happy, <laughs> right? And it's like, I can't call you for 10 bucks an hour. I just can't. I don't have that type of time. Uh, and it was because I did so much personal branding and co-association at the beginning. So then we stopped all of that. And yep. uh, now it's a lot more the product. And I just kind of, you'd have to really, you'd have to go to the about page to figure out who runs the company. One question. I mean, <clears throat> we have a lot of entrepreneurs that come in and they don't know what they should outsource and they don't know what they should leverage away. 
kind of walk through your deciding factors in your own business because that's the one that you know intimate everything about. Sure. You're a million dollars. You've ran out of time. You're probably like me. I was working 70, 80 hours a week going crazy, but I saw a future. I saw a business that I was building. I saw all the lives that we were impacting. So I was like, I, I got to keep doing this. And at some point I just couldn't anymore. So right. if you know, somebody in the audience is in that stage, what do they do? Like what's next? How do you figure out what to, to give away? <clears throat> So I'll actually use the virtual assistant component because that was actually one of the most useful things that I did to be able to scale out what was uh, my own personal time. So look for your biggest time sucks throughout the day. So one of the biggest time sucks for me was email. Uh, It was also discussing um, uh, doing setting up meetings, all the stuff that, that you guys do basically, calendar, right? Cal- calendar, calendar stuff. yeah. And I mean, like you can try one of these AI apps. They don't work. Uh, like oh. <laughs> no, one, no one replaces a, at least up until now, a human being that can come out and say, yeah, you know what? Daniel is available at this time, but let me double check with him just to make sure because I know that his wife is possibly setting up a surprise birthday party for him. And I need to maybe not even talk to Daniel. I need to talk to Daniel's wife or something like that to know what the timing would be. Like just apps like that don't do that process. And um, for business, it's absolutely crucial to be able to have those different, that person in place. So for me, um, I was replacing a lot of my email. So I have like tier one and tier two email that, and they have different signatures. So in Google apps for business, you actually can have someone else come in and look at your inbox, respond to messages, and then it's a different signature automatically applied. So it will say, um, it will say MJ Liam's assistant, right? Right. That will be the signature. And she will respond like me, but everyone knows, hey, this is, this is me. So sometimes I will pop up in the morning and maybe there were 283 emails, but now it's down to 83 because there are only 83 that I really need to look at. Right. Uh, so that's been huge, right? Like just there, that's getting me back two to three hours a day. Uh, and I then wanna, also- just, I want to yeah, add one little um, upgrade there. We have a client, and this is a brilliant idea, the 83 that are left in your inbox, what, mm-hmm. what he started having our virtual assistant do is draft responses, but leave mm-hmm. them in drafts. Mm-hmm. So- yeah. It goes from, you know, you had three hours down to one hour, down to half an hour because the draft yeah. is already there. So if it was right, he just sent send. And if it was wrong, he'd edit and then send. And so, yeah, you know, I like that. Efficiency, you know, kind of hacks. Yeah, I've been um, in the beginning of the process. It wasn't incredibly easy. Like there were definitely training processes that went on where, someone would send an email and then I'd say, Hey, you know, I really don't think you should email and tell this person to F off like that as an example, <laughs> like that would didn't actually happen, but that's something I would say. Uh, but like those types of examples of let's just try to reorient it. And in essence, she tries to get my voice through email. And yes. so that was big, uh, moving that forward. I think also too, just even setting up like, 
we had discussed, I've done all of these podcasts. Well, all of these podcasts don't happen through me. I just show up and bang, bang, bang. I'm the person that's doing the podcast, but I probably do about 15 minutes of prep beforehand. And, you know, I have a sheet saying, hey, who are these people? Who am I meeting with? What's the context? What am I doing? And that's all prepped for me. Uh, So that makes me way more efficient. If I were to do that process all on my own, I'd probably be able to do maybe a fifth of the current content production that I'm currently doing right now. Um, Even just right now, we're doing, we just started a new YouTube video experiment, which we've been running for the past three months. And we have someone that identifies all of the keywords that we should be identifying on YouTube. We're breaking down a list of what should, we should be talking about. That list is, it's really cool. It's pushed right to this iPad thingy that like goes into the camera and I just sit down one day a month and I just read what's off the teleprompter. And then we have eight pieces of video content per month that are loaded up into right. the system. And we're actually now gonna try to do it quarterly where I'm gonna sit down for an entire day and just load everything up for the quarter. So that just allows you, everyone thinks, oh man, you've got all of these things running and you're doing so many pieces of content. It's systematization. It's really batching all of that, all of those things into a particular you know, way and also having a bunch of people that help you uh, to be able to accomplish that. So that would be, in my opinion, email is probably the biggest suck that I would really get off my desk. Uh, particularly, you know, if you're in, I know the real estate agent is, a, or the real estate space is a market that you really serve. Um, <laughs> I have been do, doing some recent searching for real estate, and uh-huh. uh, I have been blown away at the lack of response rate. Yeah. I would like to take a look at your house. <laughs> Eight days later, I get an email back. Yeah. There should be a there should be a virtual assistant instant within an hour responding to me saying, "Here's when we can set up a booking time, and that booking time should push automatically into that real estate agent's real estate agent's phone, so that they know, hey, I have another showing at X Y Z time. Um, right. That is just going to completely blow all of your other competition out of the water because no one's really doing it at that level right now. At least in my personal experience, I've found that space to be pretty inefficient." Um, which is surprising. I thought that they would really want to go after a two to $3 million lead, but they don't, <laughs> which is confusing to me. <clears throat> you know, uh, yeah, I've, I, well, we're in that world, right? And one of the big- I don't guys- want to shit on real estate agents either. Like I, I'm sure that they're all nice people, but so far it's been very difficult to even get one on the phone to say, I would like to go and see this property on Saturday at 4 p.m., that's the email that I'm writing and I just don't get a response. I mean, anytime you do that, you're throwing money out the window. Yeah, I agree. You know, and you know, what's even crazier. So there's 28 million businesses in, in the U S and 96% of them are under a million dollars of that 60, 60% of them show no income or they lose money according to the IRS. So the, like that, what you're talking about, the, um, you know, small business is just a, it's a challenging world world for entrepreneurs and answering the phone when they're with a client or being on their website, it's just not their highest and best use. And that's, I mean, that's probably why this business was built. Like my right. because 
agents just won't respond. I mean, right. I was, I was looking at a building, um, a commercial building and I, I went and saw it and it was for lease and I went, wanted to buy it. And the guy says, okay, we'll just check it out. S- six weeks later, it goes on the market. He never called me before it went on the market yet. He could have double ended a really, you know, a multi-million dollar commercial play. Wow. And he's one of the best agents in my market, you know? And so <laughs> I actually don't think it's, this is unique to real estate. I've got friends in the insurance world. I've got, you know, companies that do PEOs. We have a lot of clients and I think it's just challenging, you know, as you're building a company, when you go through that valley of death, you know, 1 mm-hmm. million, to million, mm-hmm. you know, stuff gets broken. And mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the value that we add is just helping people build. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, every single lead it will, and you just boil down to that particular point. I've been, when you look at, just globally, and then you look at the United States, be part of the 1% of the United States, how much money do you think you need to make? I think it's like 400,000. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, that's a lot of money, but it's also not a lot of money, right? Everyone thinks it's $100 million or something like that. Now, what do you think you need to make to be part of the global 1%? Yeah, no idea. 32,000 US per year. Ah, okay. So, 31, 32,000 US per year, you're part of the global 1%. And I think to myself, man, how many real estate agents are in, well, they're probably, I'm looking for a seven figure real estate purchase in the market that I'm currently in. So they're throwing out, you know, probably uh, the top 1% of their, of their, like I'm, I'm a good lead overall for all of the people that they're going to be working with. Um, that commission check is going to be a good commission check for them. It's going to be a big one. And all I need is I'm very busy. I need you to, I need to see this place at 4 PM and I can't get someone to literally come in and tell me, yeah, okay. I can show up. Like we, uh, me and my girlfriend, she got so frustrated that she literally went to one of these places, one of the properties, knocked on the door and said, hi, I would like to see your place and I can't talk to you. your real estate agent isn't getting back to me. And then the, the, you know, the client was just like, what? We've been yeah. trying to move this thing for the past six months. Are you kidding me? Yes, I can show you the, the house. And it's just like, that's not a situation you want to be in, right? As a real estate agent. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I don't have that much experience in the space, but it seems incredibly inefficient when you could put in an assistant, you could put in a support agent at a relatively low cost to be able to solve that entire problem for you and even just do literally support scheduling and CRM management, right? Like that one rep could basically, I think it could double your commissions over an entire year easily. Mm -hmm. But again, um, (laughs) I'm in this, I'm so frustrated with these real estate agents. So if there are real estate agents that are listening right now, get your stuff together, like answer the leads or, or hire my out desk to actually figure out that problem. I'm sure they can handle it perfectly for you. And then I can literally s- schedule my 4 PM showing. Yeah. On that note, Liam, this has been an amazing interview. Thanks for your time. Um, if before we leave, if somebody was interested in time, doctor, give them the one, two, three, like where would they go? What would they do? Um, and go to time, doctor.com, go to the website, uh, 
fill up, you know, you can sign up for a 14 day trial. You will actually have a human being that can contact you within five minutes. Literally our response time is four minutes and 42 seconds on average. Uh, so nice. we have fantastic customer support and you can try out a 14 day trial of time doctor right there. Uh, and then also too, if you want to check out the conference that we run on remote work, we do it in Bali every year. That's my personal kind of passion project. And you can check that out at runningremote.com. Awesome. Liam, thanks for joining us today. Um, appreciate everything you shared. We've learned a lot. And man, I just, thanks again.